This really is a, a dramatic shift of tone in, in Romans chapter 9. I'll try to tie the two thoughts together for you, but begin with me in verse 1. Paul says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Sometimes people say the Bible never really says that Jesus is God. There's a verse for you to underline and remind yourself that the very clearly says so there in that verse there. From verse 6, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But, quote, In Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, it was said to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I wonder if these words here between 1 and 13, I wonder how much sense you can, you can make of those off the cuff here, trying to follow in chapter 9 from the previous chapters. Chapter 9 here takes really quite a dramatic uh, shift of, of direction. There's a very different emphasis there's some concepts being uh, mentioned here that are different. They're 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 new-ish, and um, I, as I was studying this, I was reminded how how thoughtful readers of the scripture have to be. If you read through the Bible once a year, once every two years, however often it takes you, you read over these uh, words and you read over these sentences, and, and does their import impact you? Do you, do you roll along with the meaning and intent that the apostle is, is speaking about here? Paul is talking about his brethren. His kinsmen, according to the flesh, is what it said in verse 4. And then he said that he wishes that he might be accursed from Christ. Why would he say that? And what is his intent 
in that. And then what we realize here, by the time we get through verse 6, that, that Paul is referring to two contrasting kinds of Israelite-ness, or two contrasting kinds of Jewish-ness. There is an Israelite, Paul says, that is not an Israelite. Again, the, the, the tone in the letter has taken a dramatic shift. Look back at the end of chapter 8 with me. Look at verse 38, which is the second to the last verse in chapter 8. He wrote, I'm persuaded neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The end of eight is this rich, powerful, uh, rejoicing and confidence of the believer who knows that his security and his hope is in the person of Christ and nothing can separate the believer from the love of God that is in Christ. And boom, we are here in nine on this subject. Paul says, I wish I could be accursed for my people, Israel, who is not Israel? Just a huge change of subject here. Do you see how he says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. There's a paradox here at 9 that we had no idea of in 8. 8 ends really in, in ultimate joy, gospel joy. Nine begins continual sorrow and anguish. How do the two things go together? Why do these two things go together? Paul begins to speak to us that there is a longing in his heart for Israel to be the same kind of Israel that he is. There, there, there's a strange... Uh, Contrasting here. They're not true Israelites. I think we see it in verse 8. Verse 8, read with me. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. What flesh is he speaking about? What's in mind when he's speaking about these children of flesh? They're not truly the seed of Abraham, he says, unless they are children of promise. He begins to open our eyes to the contrast being made because Abraham had two children that are in view. What are their names? Can you remember the, the, maybe the mother's names? The mother's names are mentioned in the book of Galatians also on the same subject. Two children, Isaac and Ishmael. And he says, not all Abraham's children are true Israel. Paul says he has sorrow and he has grief. And, and we do, we really want to notice and consider this. This is one of the important lessons in the text for us today. Great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I can wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. What is he saying there? 
What does he feel? He's speaking about an emotion. When you feel sorrowful and you feel full of anguish, he's feeling a deep compassion. He has a great desire for something that is not the case and he desires that it would be the case. How deeply does he feel it? To what degree is he willing to give of himself for it to become the case? What does he say? It's a very, very unique phrase in the New Testament. I wish that I myself could be accursed. Wow. It's very, very uncommon for someone to say something like that in the Bible. He feels very deeply about this. And he's now wondering for us and with us about Israel. Israel, the nation of Israel. And he says not all of them are Israel who are Israel. There is a little bit of a strange paradox that we really have to dig into to understand I think I've got ten terms for you, ten words for you that we will look at in verses 1 to 5. And so I'm going to give a little bit of definition, maybe not all that you want. If you want some more, we can work on them after the message. But I'm going to try to give you an overview of some of these words so that we can understand this train of thought. First one is accursed. Verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed. Willing to take the curse. We're wishing, he, he says, I, I wish that I myself could be cursed in exchange for my brethren. What does he mean by this? Well, there's a uh, almost identical use of the word in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. It's used in a negative sense there. But Galatians 1, 8 and 9. Turn there and, and or remember with me as we, we read these words in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. He's speaking about people who would teach a gospel that wouldn't be the gospel that he has taught. What does he wish about somebody like that? Verse 8, Galatians 1, 8. If we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. In other words, Paul in the letter to the Galatians is speaking about the gospel that can save. And the Galatian church had begun to adapt and, 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 and take on some additions to the gospel. They, they, they hadn't altered anything that had been taught, but they were adding to it circumcision. And he says, if anybody brings to you anything other than what you've heard, let him be accursed. What does that mean? May he be damned. May he go to hell. May he suffer eternal fire. The the curse here is the curse. The word is anathema. May he be cursed. So in Romans chapter 9, Paul's Paul's words when he says that that I might be accursed for my people. We're we're hearing a man who it seems as he's revealing his heart to us. If if my taking the curse for them could result in their good, I would do it. That is an incredible um, degree of, of, of love 
and commitment to this people that he feels sorrow for. Exodus 32, verses 30 to 34. Exodus 32, verse 30. Moses speaking to the Hebrews is just note we're in chapter 32 where we're coming close to the end of the book of Exodus verse 30 says it came to pass on the next day Moses said to the people you have committed a great sin now I will go up to the Lord perhaps I can make atonement for your sin Moses turned to the Lord and said oh these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold yet now if you will forgive their sin now listen to what he says listen to what Moses says because this is such a rare thing to happen anywhere in the Bible he says if not if you won't forgive their sin God I pray blot me out of your book which you have written Moses has this same sort of feeling that Paul expresses in Romans chapter 9. In other words, Moses knows that they would and, and, and maybe even rightly should be destroyed for their sin of making the idol of gold and, and, and making a false god to worship. But Moses intercedes for them and, and he makes this offer. He says, may, may my own life be removed from the book may my person be removed from your book if if you won't forgive their sin this is not a common degree of commitment of a man to a people very significant this word accursed has that meaning he speaks about brethren here we've got to be careful about the word brethren he says I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Look at Philippians 3, 3 to 6. Philippians 3. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians 3, verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Now, you might have jumped in your mind when he said we are the circumcision to thinking about the Jews who are circumcised the eighth day, but he very immediately he says we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. By the Spirit, we rejoice in Christ Jesus, have no confidence in the flesh. But listen how he changes the, 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 the tone here. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. So he mentions two different kinds of circumcision in, in, in two sentences. There is a spiritual one and there is a physical one. And the physical one is that that is owned or shared by the people of Israel. 
So when he makes this reference to himself, to these brethren, he's speaking of his physical relation to them. They're, they have a common heritage. Okay? They are, they are the people of Abraham, is what he's referring to there. Genesis 32 and verse 28. Genesis 32. Verse 28. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Verse 28 is kind of the conclusion of Jacob's wrestling with God. Verse 28 says, And he said, God speaking to Jacob, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. There is this people of God who are called Israelites. We see at the beginning of verse 4. Israelites take this name from Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Why? Because he wrestled with God. We're looking at what's also called the patriarchs or the fathers, which is referred to here as well, the people of God. We have Jacob, name changed to Israel. Paul is an Israelite. We'll make that connection here again in a second. These are the Israelites. To whom pertain it that says the adoption and the glory and the covenants? Uh, I'm just going to make reference to the word adoption here. We've seen the word adoption in the book of Romans already. And the word adoption up to this point has referred to what? It's referred to you who were not a people, you who were not sons or daughters, but adopted into being God's people by the Spirit whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We've been adopted in Christ as children and heirs. Is that what this word in Romans chapter 9 means? No. It's not talking about believers. And actually that's Paul's reason for sorrow and anguish. He's saying we have so much in common in our Israel light Israelite-ness in our heritage. We share that, but they're not in Christ. So this adoption here is different. How, how is that considered an adoption? Well, Abraham was a people who was not God's people. When you go all the way back to the beginning, God calls Abraham and Abraham is to leave his people. He's to leave his country. One of the things the Old Testament says is that Israel is a people who was not a people. They had no God. God made himself their God. He claims them as his people. Really, uh, quite amazing story. The, the glory of God and the covenants, the, the, the chief covenant being that 
of the covenant made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 17. You'll see a reference to the covenant made with Abraham. Are you familiar with that one? Where God promises or God says that... Let's go look at it. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17.2 I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and shall you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your descendants after you. This covenant... In Genesis chapter 17, which is an agreement between God and Abraham and his descendants after him, this is the reason there is some confusion on the part of the Hebrews who are reading and listening to the book of Romans. If the promise was made to Abraham and to his descendants, and if the promise is for those who Believe and have the faith of David and Abraham, which it mentioned in Romans chapter 4, there appears to be a conflict. If the promise to Abraham is to the physical descendants of Abraham, which is what we just read there, but Paul says the gospel is those who the gospel is for those who hear and believe in the righteousness of Christ, there appears to be a conflict. So we have to work on this and, and, and clarify where this conflict comes from. But this covenant here, in Genesis chapter 17, is, is, is one of the main reasons why this conflict exists. But there are other covenants. Genesis chapter 9, for example, there's a covenant made between God and Noah. And God promises that he will never again destroy all the life from the earth. What is the sign of the covenant in Genesis chapter 9? What's the sign? A rainbow. And so you and I are familiar with the concept of, of covenant and covenants. And frankly, the, the use of the word covenant is, is one of the most useful ways for you and I to understand the, the progress of God's dealings with men over the ages. There are these agreements that God makes with Noah and then Abraham. And, and it, under, it gives us a way to understand God's interacting with men. We also see back in Romans 9, 1 to 5, after adoption, glory, and covenants, 
he refers to, Paul refers to the giving of the law and the service of God. Giving of the law. Where do we see the giving of the law in the Old Testament? Can you remember where does that happen? Ten Commandments happens where? Exodus chapter 20. It's an easy, uh, easy spot. It's not the only mention of it, but you guys can probably remember that in Exodus chapter 20 is where we read about the giving of the law. Exodus 28 is where we read how the priesthood is established. Who is the first high priest for the nation of Israel? Aaron and his sons. The priesthood. Or in other words, that's, that's the, the, the foundation of service to God. The priesthood. The tabernacle. The, the bringing of offerings. So, let me, let me get your feet back into the large context. When Paul says in verse 2, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. They were the people who were not a people. And the glory and the covenants. Noah's covenant. Even Adam's covenant. Abraham's covenant. This is the Israel that Paul is feeling deep anguish for. They are the ones who had received the law. Through whom came the service of God. Through whom came the promises. He says. Exodus 6, 7 a reference to the promises in mind here. Exodus 6-7. Big promises. Important ones. <clears throat> Exodus 6, 6 and 7. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Listen to what he says. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. One of many phenomenal promises, not little promises, very significant and important promises in the course of mankind. This comes through Israel. This comes through the people of Abraham. It goes on to say in verse 5, Whose are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Referred to in Exodus 6, 7. All, all three of the fathers are, are mentioned all at once. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through whom are the fathers? Every Israelite can trace their lineage back into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How? Well, they, well, they kept track of their heritage. Each Israelite knows what tribe he's from. They, they know how they are related to Abraham. These are really pretty remarkable Moments in the history of the people of Israel. Genesis 48, verse 15 says, He blessed Joseph and said, God, 
before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who sped me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads, let my name be named among them, or upon them. Who is the name? Let, let my name be named upon them. This is Jacob's blessing. This is his prayer. This is why they're called Israel. Let my name be named upon them. How does Israel have the name Israel? From Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is, this is the greatness of the Hebrews. This is the greatness of the people of Israel. So he says, let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And indeed, this is what God had done to the people of Israel. This is what God has done among the Hebrews. And then he finally says, in the close of this, this line, the, the close of this sentence, he says, and of whom and also Israel can claim this as theirs, and of whom, he says, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. So not only are all these things true, not only are these significant historic landmarks in history true of Israel and of the Hebrews, also through them, Christ came. This is another reason they are, they are great. Christ promised in Genesis 3.16, right? The, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. There's the first promise, Genesis 3.16. And then also, in, there are other examples, but Matthew 1, 1 to 16. Look at Matthew 1 with me just for a moment. And as we are introduced in these Gospels to the person of Christ. The first verse of Matthew 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Paul's thinking and, and, and writing and, and speaking of this. He says, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah, etc. We hear the tribes and the lineage of the Christ. Of whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. And so these, these words in the introduction of, of Hebrews chapter 9 are exalting the greatness of the people and the nation of Israel, the Jews. And Paul has a great anguish in his heart for them. He loves their greatness. He, he loves the... Um, the place they've had in the history of the world. I read this very interesting quote about um, a more modern uh, I don't know, reflection of the greatness of Israel in the world. There was a statesman, uh, a, a politician in the late 1800s. His name was Benjamin Disraeli. I hadn't heard of him before I read this quote. The conservative statesman who served as Prime Minister of England in 1868 and from 1874 to 1880. He was elected to Parliament at the age of 33 and shortly thereafter was attacked by Daniel O'Connell, 
the Irish Roman Catholic leader, in the course of his, listen to this language, this is great, unrestrained invective. Have you ever said that phrase in your life? <laughs> that means you've got a tongue that's being nasty, out of control, okay? Unrestrained invective, that's what that means. You're being mean and, and, and nasty, ranting. O'Connell referred to Disraeli's Jewish ancestry. So this guy's ripping on him for being a Jew. Okay, this guy does not like the Jews. He's a, a, a Roman Catholic who's venting his, his venom about the Jews. Listen to this. Disraeli replied to this. Yes, sir, I am a Jew. And I remind my illustrious opponent that when the ancestors of that right honorable gentleman were brutal savages eating nuts in a German forest, my ancestors were serving as priests in the Temple of Solomon and were giving law and religion to the world. What a fascinating contrast that is. The Jewish nation, the Jewish people, the history of God's working in a people dwelling among them, making a people holy by His presence, by His law, is, is undeniable. They are indeed a very, very remarkable people. Look with me at, at verse 5 of 9. The New King James says it more clearly than the King James, which is how I read it first. It says, Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. And then it goes on to say, Who is over all the eternally blessed God? Amen. The eternally blessed God. This is such a great statement of the deity of Christ. And it's, it's almost a rabbit trail. But it's part of the reason there is conflict between many of the Jews, many of the Hebrews, and the Christians. As we who have been born again believe that Christ is God. We believe He is the eternal God. The man God. So, let's consider Romans chapter 3. You guys remember what Romans chapter 3 said? What's, the, what's your sum uh, recollection of what Romans chapter 3 had said? What is, the, what is the conclusion? Well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the statements made in Romans chapter 3 is that nobody will be justified by works of the law. Okay, you non-Jews, you hear that and you're like, well, good, or so. But the Jews reading that none will be justified by works of the law find that difficult. 
You and I should know, we should, we should revel that faith in Christ has become the reason there is peace between man and God. Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have faith in Christ, is the reason there is hope of peace between you and God. Instead of wrath, Christ is our peace. Instead of wrath, Christ is our righteousness. Instead of our sinfulness. Christ is the believer's life instead of death. The gospel is Christ. The gospel is an exchange of wrath for sin to peace and life. And you'll remember that one of the things we had read in Romans is that the Christian, the, the person who has put his faith in Christ will serve according to the newness of the Spirit and not according to the oldness of the letter. The Christian has been indwelt by the Spirit and must walk by the Spirit. And the Jew who is listening to the Gospel claims feels a dreadful conflict because he has been instructed, and even correctly to a degree, to walk according to the law, to keep the commandments of God. And the Jew can't help but feel this conflict. This contrast between the oldness of the letter and the newness of the Spirit has put a wedge in the hearts of some of the Hebrews. Romans 5.19 said, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. The Hebrew can't help but feel offended by this, can't help but feel that there is a certain uh, illogicalness to this statement that Paul has made in Romans 5. We cannot establish, make, maintain our righteousness by the law. These are Paul's people. Paul and these who feel this conflict are one nation. They're one race. And they have a shared joy. They have a shared heritage. They have a shared greatness and, and, and grandeur to who they are. The Israelite has had amazing privilege. The Israelite has been honored above all peoples on planet Earth in all times. Until the time of the Gospel being preached to Gentiles. They have truly been the greatest people in the world. Romans 2. Look at Romans 2 verse 17. 
Think about the Jew and his contemplation of the gospel. Romans 2.17 Indeed, you are called a Jew. Rest on the law. Make your boast in God. Know his will and approve the things that are excellent. Being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind. Now is that like a gross confidence? Is the Jew who is a a guide to the blind, what, what kind of confidence is that? It's, it's not perverse. It's actually a reality. They are the people who have been given the prophets, given the covenants. They have the word of God. They know what is sin and they know what is not sin. And so when we read this in, in Romans chapter 2, confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, there, there is obviously a level of truth and sobriety to that statement. It's not like you could go to the Gentiles and get better counsel. The Gentiles can't tell you how to be right. And so there's a, a, a little bit of a two-edged sword here. A light to those who are in darkness, he goes on to say, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. The word form is pretty key there. You therefore who teach another, you Jews who, who, who can teach these things, who can say these things, who can verify the truthfulness of these things, you who can indeed bring light to darkness. Listen to what he says. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Now here's, here's where Paul brings the wrecking ball to the Jewish confidence in the law. He doesn't say the law is bad, but what does he say? What does he say? You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that man should not steal, do you steal? Now in the preaching of the Lord Jesus, in the book of Matthew, you'll remember in the, in the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, there are a couple of equivalents made in the preaching of Christ. Adultery is one that you'll probably remember and, and the Jew knows, the Jew knew what is adultery. It is wrong to commit adultery. But the Lord Jesus says, yeah, it's wrong. And, and you hold yourselves righteous for not being adulterers. But you all commit adultery in your hearts. When you look, when you men look at a woman... Or when you women look at a man and you want them, you have committed adultery. This is the rub. This is the Jewish realm of ignorance. When the Lord Jesus is preaching that, the Hebrews who hear that are hearing the law brought to bear on them to a degree that they have never heard or felt. And they can't imagine that the law is actually the reason for their guilt, not the reason for their righteousness. There's a conflict in the ears and the hearts of the Jews who hear the preaching of the gospel. So it's said there, 
in Romans chapter 2, 22. You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God? The early lines of Romans is meant to expose hypocrisy that's hidden inside the hearts of men in order that they would turn to Christ for righteousness instead. It's not that those laws against adultery are wrong laws. All they can do is expose your sin. All they can do is expose your need of a Savior. And the Jews have a terrible, difficult time understanding the gospel of salvation because they've been resting in their ability to do what's right. Walk and do what's right and be confident in your own righteousness. The Israelites have held to Abraham's covenant. They've held on to that promise in Abraham's covenant. And as, as they listen to the gospel of Christ, now Abraham's covenant made three distinct promises. Land, seed, blessing. You will be given a land. There will be a multitude of seed from Abraham and blessing. Those who are with Abraham, God will bless. Those who are opposed to Abraham, God will curse. That's a blessing. If you're the Jew and God says, whoever comes against you, I will be against them. You're like, okay, I am Superman. I'm bulletproof. Nobody can come against me because God has promised. Whoever is with me, God will help. Whoever is opposed to me, God will oppose. This, These three promises are the Jews' foundation of their knowledge and understanding of favor with God, eternal favor with God. And so when they hear the preaching of Paul's gospel, they're in conflict. They're being told by Paul, we must put our trust and hope in Christ and Christ alone. What about all this other stuff? What are we supposed to think of all of that? The basis of the Jews' hope in God is through these covenant promises. Genesis 17.7 We read a moment ago, but this is just the core of the covenant. Genesis 17.7 God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants. The Israelites are indeed the children of the covenants. The gospel in their minds conflicts with the promises of the covenants. And so, taking a step back here for a moment, Romans 9, 10, and 11, all three chapters are speaking to these children of the covenant. The subject of 9, 10, and 11 is on the subject of Jews, the Israelites. How, how are they to find God to be a faithful promise maker? If God's promise is to be kept, then 
how can it be that all of the Jews are not eternally saved? God made a promise to Abraham. Paul, are you saying that most of the Jews aren't actually going to be saved? This is the conflict in the, in the hearts of these Jews. And this is what Paul's initial words are. He says, I have a great sorrow. I have a great anguish for the Israelites of the flesh. What does he mean when he says that he has a great anguish for them? That he has a great sorrow for them? They're not Christians. They do not have eternal life. But they think they do. They wear the name, and, and let's shift the vernacular. They call themselves Christians, but they're not Christians. Because they do not have faith in or hope in Christ. Paul will teach us how the two things go together. How does God's promise, which is an unbreakable promise, God's promises are sure, how do those sure, true words fit together with gospel and ultimately maintain to be true for Israel? How does that happen? Or, or is it even possible? We'll be dealing with that in these coming days as we look at this. I want you to consider, just for a moment, as we kind of wrap up the introduction to Romans chapter 9. Chapter 9, 1 to 3 here gives you an insight into a, a remarkably mature and godly man. Paul's, Paul's feeling and his compassion here is really, really incredible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. I'd like you to turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 11, and I, I think you remember this when we read this. Paul has a lot of good reasons to despise the Jews. Why? Why would I say that? Why might Paul despise the Jews? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. From verse 22. He asks the question, Are they Hebrews? And he's speaking about some people who have been exercising their influence on the Christians. He says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. So he's, he's establishing the fact that the basis on which false teachers are claiming authority over Christians, he's saying, I have all of their qualifications and more. That's what we just read. He's saying they, they're making their claims to influence you on this basis. I have more. But listen to how he goes on here. I more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Now there is an interesting one. Paul died more than once in his 
suffering for the gospel. We won't go into that now, but that's quite fascinating, isn't it? Now look at what it says in verse 24. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. What does he mean by that? That means he had been apprehended and taken uh, captive, like, like, like the police might arrest somebody and, and take somebody captive. Forty stripes minus one means this. Legally, under Levitical law, you can give somebody 40 beatings. You can, you can hit them 40 times under the law. But in the, in the Jews' concern to not break the law, 39 was their number. Let's, not, let's make sure we don't miscount. So five times he was arrested and given 39 stripes. And you remember the, the beating of the kid in uh, Singapore about 20 years ago? Do you guys remember that? He had broken the law in Singapore, and I, I believe he was an ambassador's son or something. It was a big brouhaha. Because he was going to be beaten. He was going to be caned according to Singaporean law. And people were terrified that that was such a horrible way to punish somebody. What do you think Paul felt toward the person who whipped him with the cane 39 times? What does that feel like, do you think? How, how, how well do you walk home after 39 lashes with a piece of bamboo. I, I, don't, I don't know what they used. We're talking an excruciating beating. Five different times the Jews manhandled Paul and I have no doubt brought him to blood on his back. <laughs> we read in Romans 9 1 to 3. What is this man's opinion to the people who have treated him with brutal severity? I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I could wish I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Acts 21 verses 26 to 32 mentions a similar list of suffering under the hands of the Jews. Now why is this man able to express such a genuine love and empathy and hope for a people who have treated him so badly? And this is where I want to close today. This is where I wanted to make sure we got to before we ended today. What is your heart's attitude to those who are against you? A mature Christian man is here with Paul. And, and, and you might need to parse this out in, in many ways. But what do you feel toward those who've harmed you? He, his greatest charge against them, and, and as these chapters unfold, there, there are two different things at work in these people who have been opposed to him. But ultimately, they don't believe that Christ is the Savior. 
They, they, they don't believe that. They're in a state of ignorance. What does Paul feel and think about a people who are ignorant? Does he hate them? Does he want to kill them? I just, frankly, I find it harder. I don't, I don't think I would feel that way towards somebody who had beaten me even once. It's Jewishness that was opposed to him, not a certain Jew. Jewishness. Their fundamental beliefs are the reason he was arrested and beaten these five times and, and other sufferings, of course. How do you handle people that you don't like? How do you deal with people who are opposed to you and who haven't seen what they need to see so that they might have a change of heart? Listen to what he says in Romans 10, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Do you hold unbelieving people in a certain disdain? Or do you have compassion on lost and confused and ignorant people? Why are people not Christians? Why are their eyes closed to Christ? And do you despise them for it? What if they arrest you next year and put you in jail for the rest of your days? It's not out of the realm of possibilities. What if they're mean to you? Will you be able to have compassion on them? Will you be able to pray for them and, and love them? Even maybe the way Christ from the cross looks at the crowds saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul is a huge man. Paul is a, a great, great man of gospel compassion and gospel hope. Christians are to be a very greatly, deeply patient and mature and long-suffering people for the gospel's sake. And in confidence for God to change the hearts of rebels. So I hope as we close in prayer, you'll take a minute and, and bear your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, may I be a, a great hoper in Christ and may I be patient under the hands of people who are cruel to me. Let's take a minute and pray and worship the Lord. Father in heaven, we're grateful for this man who gave his life who gave his life to the gospel, who gave all of his hope and confidence to Christ. Oh Lord, might we be patient. Might we be winsome in our gospel persuading God. And might we be patient for your own power and the Spirit to bring conviction and faith. Lord, we love you. We commit our, our day and our way to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.